Amen. Well, church, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21, verse 37. That's Luke chapter 21, verse 37. And while you're doing that, I just want to reiterate what John just said. Next week, our service will be at the new building. So praise God for his blessing of this new building to our church. But I just want to make sure you know to be over there, not over here. If you show up over here, that might be a little awkward. So, um, But it's going to be at 10 o'clock. So for all of y'all that like this later service, got to get up a little bit earlier. Um, but anyway, if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 21, verse 37. And today in our text, we're going to cover verses 37 and 38 in chapter 21. So we're going to finish chapter 21 off. And then we're going to go to chapter 22 and cover verses 1 through 6. So eight verses total we're going to cover today. If you haven't done so already, please turn to Luke chapter 21, verse 37. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the seat back in front of you. And just take that and turn to Luke chapter 21, verse 37. And uh, read along with me. We're going to go through uh, chapter 22, verse 6. Let's read that together. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Today in our text, we are entering into what will be the climax of Luke's gospel. The first 21 chapters have been preparing us for these last three chapters. Today, our journey through Luke is taking us into the passion narrative. It's now late in the evening on Wednesday night. On Thursday, the Lord will share one last meal with his apostles, and on Friday, he will be crucified. But the cross just isn't the climax of Luke's gospel. The cross is the climax of redemptive history. You see, church, where we are in our text is less than 48 hours away from the most important moment in our existence as sinful man. In the 4,000 years preceding the cross, no sacrifice has been sufficient to satisfy the wrath of our holy God and cover the multitude of the sins of man. God gave us his law to show us that we were incapable of fulfilling it. But in Jesus, his Christ, the law has been fulfilled. So God has been making a point to us. And I want, to, I want you to understand this, church. On our own, left to our own desires and wills, we have absolutely no chance for salvation. And so we're quickly approaching the moment when the one who could keep God's law will die as the sacrifice for those who could not. Today, our text is going to bring our attention to some of the people and events that will play a major role in the journey to the cross. Luke is, he's shifting us from the previous narrative, but as we enter into the passion narrative, there are some things that we need to know. 
So Luke is using this section of the gospel account to inform us of these key people and things that we need to know about as we move forward in his gospel account. And we have to pay close attention here. The unregenerate and the biblically illiterate will read these verses and think that Satan or Judas or the chief priests are the cause of Jesus's crucifixion. They reason that Jesus would not have died if they weren't so sinister, that somehow Jesus's death could be avoided if the people in our text today weren't so evil. Church, that is a lie. It's a misinterpretation of scripture. Sure, we see the chief priest doing something here and we see Judas doing something here and we also see Satan doing something here. But none of those are who is truly at work in our text today. The one who's at work here is God. God is causing what we see in this portion of the text. The cross is God's doing. It's the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. Our text is displaying the sovereignty of our holy God. So I've titled today's sermon, Sovereignty Sets the Scene for Our Savior's Sacrifice. You see, church, we can't look at the events leading up to the cross as a random chain of events that ultimately lead to the crucifixion of our Lord and then also declare that he died for our salvation. That's essentially saying that God's plan was thwarted, but he figured out a way to make it work in the end. That is not what is happening. And that makes no sense. And it's a very low view of God that the creation could act outside the plans of the creator. What we're going to see today, and as we journey through chapters 22 and 23 in Luke, are the unfolding of events that were planned by God before he laid the foundations of the world. Everyone mentioned in our text today is part of God's plan. Don't forget that as we go through this portion of scripture, don't, don't, don't forget that. This is all part of God's plan. As we go through today, as we go through in the coming weeks, this is all part of God's plan, church. So as we go through our text today, be looking for how God is achieving the plan that he set forth, which is the cross. And we'll see God's plan begin to unfold in three sections of our text today. First, in verses, in, in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 21, we'll see the summary. Second, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 22, we'll see the situation. And third, in verses 4 through 6, we'll learn about the scheme. So the summary in verses 37 and 38 the situation in verses one through three, and the scheme in verses four through six. We'll see today that all of these play a part in God's plan for the cross. So let's begin by looking at verses 37 and 38, which is the very end of chapter 21, where we'll see the summary. Verses 37 and 38 say, and every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So this is a summary. Um, we see the word he twice in verse 37 and him twice in verse 38. And all four of these are referring to Jesus. Jesus is teaching in the temple during the day and resting or lodging at the Mount of Olives at night. All the people are meeting him at the temple every morning so they can hear his teaching. Luke is using these two verses to summarize what's been going on the last two or three days, somewhere between 48 and 72 hours. 
And this is how Luke is transitioning us from the first part of what we know as Holy Week to what's going to be the rest of Holy Week. Luke is writing verses 37 and 38 as a summary of what he has been writing for the last two chapters. Jesus' Jesus's entry into Jerusalem began in chapter 19, verse 28, which is where you can find the triumphal entry. So Luke is going to transition now from Jesus' teaching to the passion narrative. So he brings the current narrative to an end by summarizing what he has been doing, what Jesus has been doing. Jesus is coming to the temple to teach every day, and then at night, he's returning to Bethany. It was too dangerous to stay in Jerusalem because Jewish authorities would easily find Jesus um, had he stayed in the city. The crowds would have revealed his location because they would have followed him right up to the doorstep where he was lodging. So Jesus is going back to the town of Bethany at night in order to avoid arrest until the time is right. And the people are coming to the temple to hear him. And their interest, sadly enough, in Jesus is mainly superficial. And the reason we know that is because in less than 48 hours, where we are in our text right now, they're gonna be screaming for his crucifixion rather than being eager for his teaching. So as Luke summarizes the last couple of chapters for us, um, now's a good time to look at what Holy Week has looked like so far. So what has Jesus done? What's been going on during Holy Week? Well, let's take a look at the timeline and to put the timeline of Holy Week together, we can use the gospel accounts of John and Mark. So on Saturday, we're gonna go back to Saturday and work our way forward. On Saturday, Jesus arrived at Bethany, which is where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary reside. And we can see this in John chapter 12, verses one and two. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So Jesus arrived in Bethany to have dinner with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus on Saturday. Their house is going to serve as the Lord's place to sleep during Holy Week. And we know from the other gospels that the Lord and his disciples are at Simon the leper's house this day having dinner. On this occasion, Mary anoints the Lord's head and feet with expensive ointment. Bethany is the location to which Luke is referring to in the second half of verse 37 in our text today. When it says at night, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, Luke is referring to Bethany. And that's where he stays with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And we know this uh, from Mark chapter 11, verse one. That's how we can draw the kind of the, the relationship between the Mount of Olives and Bethany's. Uh, Mark chapter 11, verse one says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So, so Bethany's right there at the uh, base of the Mount of Olives. So when we see that Jesus is going to the Mount of Olives, he may be going to pray or to teach on the mountain, as we saw last week with Mike's teaching, but ultimately he's going to the house of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, which he uses as a place of rest from the tiring work of teaching and weaving throughout all the crowds all day in the temple. So that was Saturday. That's Saturday. Now, we can also find an account of Sunday in John chapter 12 in verses nine through 11. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, 
because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, we don't know how long before Holy Week, this week that we're currently in, that Lazarus was raised from the dead. But we can see here from these verses that the word of the, the event had time to, to spread. So people were coming to see Jesus and see Lazarus, who is now the most popular resident of Bethany. But look at verses 10 and 11. The chief priests now want to kill Lazarus because he is the physical evidence of the power that Jesus has. And this presents a problem to their power and their influence over the people. See, as long as Lazarus is alive, there's evidence that, hey, Jesus, Jesus performs miracles. And that's bringing a lot of attention to, to Jesus, and they're afraid that they're going to lose power because of it. But moving on, let's look at Monday. Monday, the Lord makes his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, and we can see that also in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now from Mark's account, Mark's, account, Mark's gospel, we know that Jesus went home after arriving at the temple on Monday. So he made his triumphal entry and then he, he made it to the temple and they, then he went home. We can see that in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to, Beth, to Bethany with the 12. So triumphal entry on Monday. And let's not forget, church, that the triumphal entry, while we're talking about it, it was, it was clearly stated as part of God's plan, all right? I don't know if you remember, but Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, told us that this triumphal entry was going to happen. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this makes it clear to us that the events that are unfolding as we read through Luke's gospel are the work of God. God is showing us what we're reading here, that it's his sovereign plan. And we're gonna talk a little more about that as we go on, but let's move on to Tuesday. So Monday was the triumphal entry. Tuesday, Jesus cleanses the temple and begins teaching the people. And we can see that in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 16, which says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So that was Tuesday. Jesus cleanses the temple. And you can find Luke's account of the cleansing of the temple in chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. Now that brings us to Wednesday, which is the day that we're currently on in our text. Okay, so we're, we're, we're getting back up to date here. And we can see um, that in Mark chapter 11, verses 20 and 27 through 28. And it says this, and they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, 
the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And this is where Jesus has his authority challenged by the Jewish religious leadership. Um, and that's what Sam's been preaching about for the last few Sundays. That's where Sam's been. And then after that, he tells about the destruction of the temple and the second coming, which Mike preached about last week. But the events of all of these days reveal to us that our sovereign God is at work behind the scenes. And as we move forward, I want to uh, draw your attention to John chapter 11, verses 53 through 57. It says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stooped in the, uh, stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that he should let him know so they might arrest him. So just after Jesus raises Lazarus, the chief priests and the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus. And again, this is before Holy Week. Um, so while all the events that we were just talking about, that we just summarized this whole week leading up to now of Holy Week, the religious leadership is looking for that opportunity to kill Jesus during all of that. This is an ongoing plot that they have. They're waiting for that perfect time to catch Jesus away from the crowd. And Luke chapter 19, verses 47 and 48 confirms that the plot's still going on during Holy Week. Uh, remember, this is the cleansing of the temple, so this would have been on Tuesday. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. You see, they're, they're looking for that moment. They're laying in wait. But church, there's a very good reason why they can't kill Jesus. It's because it isn't time for him to die. God has decided when Jesus will die down to the very hour it will happen. Take a look at John chapter seven, verse 30. It says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. No one arrested him there because it wasn't time. See, all that's happening here, church, it's on God's schedule. It's not on anyone else's schedule. This is God. God is sovereign. And so all the things that we see happening were decided by God even before earth was created. Look at John chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Every attempt to arrest or kill Jesus up to this point in his earthly life has failed. And they all failed because of God. In his sovereignty, God decided when Jesus would die. And the time would not come a moment sooner or later than the time that God had purposed for his death. And we can see this church throughout all the gospels. All right, in Luke chapter four, the people tried to throw Jesus off a cliff after he suggested God's grace would be offered to Gentiles and be withheld to some Jews. In Matthew chapter 12, they plotted to kill him after he healed a man on the Sabbath day on the Sabbath. And they tried to stone him in John chapter eight 
after he declared that he was God. All the attempts to kill Jesus fell because they're not part of God's plan. But if you skip ahead in the passion narrative, you can see that eventually God's timing does arrive. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 53, our Lord is speaking here as he's being arrested. And he says this, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here we can see that the hour does indeed come. And it was now time according to God's plan and God's sovereignty. Uh, let's look uh, at John chapter 13, verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Sovereignty of God here, church. His hour had come. None of the other moments were the time that God had chosen. So take note of that. The, the narrative of the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry is on God's schedule because of God's sovereignty. Do you see that, church? What we've seen over the past few days of Holy Week and what we're about to see during the rest of Holy Week are God's plan. And we've seen that here in the summary. So let's take a look now at the situation. So moving on in Luke to chapter 22. And we're going to turn our attention to verses 1 through 3, where we'll see the situation. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 3 in our text say, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was, one, who was the number of the twelve. So this is the situation. And this portion of the text is telling us what's going on right now in Luke's narrative. Um, what we see in these verses is going to drive God's plan further uh, forward and further reveal his sovereignty to us. So in verse one, we see that the feast of unleavened bread was close, which is called the Passover. And church, we need to pay real close attention here. I mean, there's a reason why Luke mentions this. In verse one, Luke is giving us a timeline. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is actually a different event from the Passover, but over time, the two began to be used interchangeably to describe both of them. In other words, people would say Passover, and they meant Passover itself plus the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or they would say the Feast, and they would mean Passover plus the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're using them interchangeably, and Luke is actually doing that also in chapter 22, verse 1. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. I want to show y'all where God institutes the Passover, and I want to point out some key verses in Exodus chapter 12 so we'll understand the significance of God's timing in our text today. So do that with me. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to start out by reading verses 1 through 5 of Exodus chapter 12. It says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from sheep or from goats. So the Lord is giving Moses and Aaron instructions for instituting the night known as Passover. Uh, for clarity, the month referred to in verse two there is called Nisan. And we see in verse three that the lamb will be used, that will be used for Passover, for the Passover sacrifice, is selected on the 10th day of Nisan. Well, the 10th day of Nisan during the time of our text is Monday. So let's see who was paying attention. What happened on Monday? Triumphal entry. Awesome, y'all. Great job. Yeah, triumphal entry. So on that day, God was choosing his lamb. He was bringing forth the lamb, a lamb without blemish that he himself had selected for Passover. So do you see it starting to unfold here, church, the, the sovereignty of God? I mean, it's just so amazing. Like, I'm going to show you all some more, but I mean, you, you just can't deny it when, when you see it. it it's, it's just happening right in front of our eyes. So the last few days of Holy Week have happened with a very specific intent. All right, let's look at Exodus 12, verse 6 now. Exodus 12, verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So, the Passover, this is the Passover, and the 14th day of Nisan is the Passover. And on this day, the lamb that was selected on the 10th day is slaughtered. In our text, we're less than 48 hours away from this time. And all the lambs are, are slaughtered nearly simultaneously by each Jewish household right at twilight. So, math scholars, if you're listening, if Monday is the 10th day of Nisan, what is the 14th day? Friday, right, Friday. So, you know, God selected his lamb, his Christ, Jesus on the 10th day, and then on the 14th day, on Friday, he'll be slaughtered. Now's a good time to remember what John the Baptist said in John verse 1, 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The way this narrative in Luke is progressing is no accident, church. It's not a random chain of events. What we see here is a detailed calculated plan, a plan put in place by our holy and righteous God. Well, let's keep going in Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 7 through 14 now. So starting in verse 7, we're going to go till 14 now. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in the water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. 
it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses uh, where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So right here, church, we see that God institutes what's known as the Passover, the individual day of Passover. It's the night that he went through Egypt and killed the firstborn of Egypt. The Lord commands that this day shall be a memorial day. This would be a day to remember when God delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. But with his lamb that he chose, he would provide his people with deliverance from something much worse than Egypt, church, which is sin and death. Continuing in Exodus, uh, we're going to go for 15 through 20, verses 15 through 20. And here we're going to see where the Lord establishes the feast of unleavened bread, which is, like I said, uh, different from the Passover. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. For you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. So there we go, the establishment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And notice that this lasts for an entire week, whereas... Passover was a single day. But do you see, church, do you see God's plan coming into play here with this timing, with the days of Nisan and what's going on with Jesus? It's right there in front of us. All these seemingly small details are converging right there at the moment of the cross. And it's, it's not an accident it's part of a divine plan, a plan which points us back to God's sovereignty. Continuing with the situation, let's look at verse 2 in Luke 22. So let's go ahead and go back to Luke chapter 22, our, our text for today, and let's take a look at verse 2. And it says this, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. The chief priests and the scribes are still looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus, even as Wednesday draws to a close and Thursday begins. Their fear of how the crowds might react is still keeping them from taking Jesus. So uh, we see there's a fear of man there. And they can't find him when he's not surrounded by throngs of people because he's going back to the Mount of Olives, back to Martha, Mary, and Lazarus in Bethany. Now, the parallel accounts of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark show us a little more detail uh, about, the, about the, religious, the Jewish religious leadership here. So I want you to write these down for your notes. These are the parallel accounts of our, our text today. 
Uh, Matthews can be found in chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. And Mark's can be found in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. So that's Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. And Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. There are your parallel accounts. And while you're writing those down, I want to point out uh, something about these parallel accounts, uh, both Matthew and Mark. They mention the anointing at Bethany, where Mary anoints the Lord with very expensive ointment. Now, it's clear in John's gospel that the anointing happened on Saturday. So it's likely that both Matthew and Mark decided to introduce this event to their readers thematically. And what I mean by that is that the anointing and the betrayal are related in that they're both uh, pointing us toward Jesus's death. So introducing them together makes sense for clarity from the point of view of the reader. In other words, Matthew and Mark, um, they wanted to bring up the anointing when they felt like it was the right time rather than chronologically. So you'll see that account in both of um, the parallel accounts there. But Mark's account in verse two, um, of verse two in our text is found in Mark chapter 14, verses one and two. It says this, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So here I want to point out a couple of things uh, that the chief priests and the scribes are desiring here. First, they want this to go unnoticed. They do not want the people to know of their arrest of Jesus. They want to do it without the crowds noticing. Second, they don't want to kill him during Passover. And this is an important point here, church. Let's pay attention to this. Their timing conflicts with God's timing. And this goes to show us further that the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion were not a random chain of events and not subject to God's sovereign timing. Jesus would have been killed more than a week or so after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says it right there. When millions of pilgrims in Jerusalem would have returned home. You see, they, that's what they thought, church. They wanted to keep it out of the spotlight of the crowd, so to speak, okay? So, so what they want is to go ahead and get Jesus arrested. That'll silence him so he can't talk to the crowds. And then they're gonna wait for the Feast of Unleavened Bread to be over where everybody goes back home, all these pilgrims go back home. This swell of population in Jerusalem returns back down to a normal size, then they're gonna kill Jesus. That's the plan. But praise God, it happens his way, not theirs. Continuing with the situation, let's go to verse three. Verse three says, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. So first we see here that Satan entered Judas. Now the Greek word that is used here means to go in, the Greek word for entered. So Satan went into Judas. Judas was possessed by Satan. And this is the first of two times that this would happen. The second time was during the Last Supper. And we can see this in John chapter 13. If you look at verses two and 27 in John chapter 13, it says, during supper, the Last Supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we see here the desire to portray Jesus is in Judas. Then in verse 27, it says, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So we have to be clear as we talk about this portion of text 
regarding Satan, church. Satan does not act outside of the sovereignty of God. Just as we are subject to God's will, so is Satan. And Job chapter 1 verse 12 helps us to understand this a little bit better. Job chapter 1 verse 12 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God placed parameters on what Satan can do with Job. And guess what? Satan obeyed. Now, if you skip ahead to Luke chapter 22, verse 31, I want to bring this to your attention. And this is the Lord speaking here. And it's just verse 31, just a few verses ahead of where you're at now. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So this verse implies that Satan must be granted permission to act. So we can see in our text today, Satan is not defying God's will here. He's doing what he's allowed to do. So we see that God's sovereignty applies to Satan just as much as it does to us. Finishing verse three, and this is the last part of the situation. It says, called Iscariot, who is of the number of the 12. And one thing that Luke's doing here in this part of the verse is he's making a distinction of which Judas he is speaking about. Um, I won't go there now, but the other Judas is mentioned in Luke chapter 6, verse 16. But um, one thing that you'll kind of notice as you read through the Gospels is at the time of the Gospels, Judas was a very popular name during this period of history. Um, Its popularity will soon go down. But uh, Luke wants to make clear that Judas Iscariot is the one that Satan's going into here, okay? But the other important point that Judas is making here, uh, that, that Luke is making here, is that Judas is one of the 12, one of the apostles. And this is a very important point for us to, to look at. For three years, Judas has walked with our Lord. He sat under Jesus' teaching. He's witnessed the Lord's signs and wonders and miracles. Yet throughout all of this, Judas was not a believer. We know from Scripture that one thing that Judas does like is money. And we can see that in John chapter 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was also part of God's sovereign plan for salvation that would ultimately put Judas, sorry, put Jesus on the cross. He was made by God to serve that purpose. This shows us God's sovereignty both in our existence and in our election church. And I know the question comes up, you mean Jesus, Judas was made so he could betray Jesus? Yeah, that's exactly why he was made. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 23. Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 23. I want to read a portion of this text to you. Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 23. 
going to read all of this, verses 9 through 23, Romans chapter 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of one lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Church, it's not a big cosmic accident. No. Just as the cross and all the events leading up to it were prepared before the foundations of the world, so was the part that Judas would play in it. God is sovereign in all that we're seeing in our text today, church. Do you see that? Let's take a look at John chapter 13, verses 16 through 20. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his hill against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So the scripture must be fulfilled. And right there in those verses, the Lord is quoting Psalm 41, verses 9 and 10. Let's take a look at that real quick. Psalm 41, verses 9 and 10. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his hill against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. This is prophecy, church. It's been fulfilled now. But God told us through that psalm that this was gonna happen. That's sovereignty, church. That's sovereignty. But let's move now to the situation, um, Luke chapter 22, verses four through six. Luke chapter 22, verses four through six. So we're gonna move away from the situation to the scheme now. So in verses four through six, we're gonna see the scheme. And it says, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So starting in verse four, he being Judas, 
went from the presence of the Lord and his disciples and met with the chief priests and officers to plan how he would turn Jesus over to them. And at the time this is happening, Jesus and the rest of the apostles are on the Mount of Olives. This might actually have happened during the text that Mike was uh, preaching last week or directly after it. But either way, we know it's late on Wednesday. So Judas is staying back in Jerusalem so that he can have this meeting with the chief priests and officers to develop a plan of how Jesus can be arrested quietly without drawing the attention of the people. And the officers we're seeing in verse four would be the temple guard, their Levites that act as a security force for the temple. You can see the chief priests aren't going to perform the actual act of arresting Jesus. That's gonna be the officers are gonna do that. Um, Matthew's account of this moment can be found in Matthew uh, chapter 26, verse three and four, and it tells us a little more about the location of the meeting. It says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name, in the palace of the high priest, excuse me, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So G G Judas goes to see them in Caiaphas's palace. So Caiaphas is part of the scheme. Now, this is the high priest. So, so this scheme to get Jesus, it's going all the way to the top. And they want it to be done in stealth. They don't want the people to see it. They want it concealed from the people. Moving on in verse five in Luke 22. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So we see from this verse that the scheme has been made. And it's making the high priest happy it's probably of a kind of happiness that's drawn from relief of stress because up to this point, they're scared that they won't be able to do anything with Jesus and he's just going to take all of their power. So now they've struck this deal and they're happy about it. And they agreed to give Judas money. Now this isn't actually because they wanted to pay Judas. This is because Judas wanted to pay Judas. So... We can see that by looking at Matthew's account one more time. Uh, Matthew 26, verses 14 through 15. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So Judas saw this as an opportunity for his own gain but this was known by God beforehand. This is no surprise. Um, take a look at Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the, then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, uh, church, I want you to keep in mind what we just read in Zechariah, and I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, verses three through eight. Matthew chapter 27, verses three through eight. And let's read that together. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 27, verses three through eight. I wanna read this part. Keep Zechariah in mind as we read this. Matthew chapter 27, verses three through eight. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver 
into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. I mean, church, I mean, what else can you say? Zechariah was written well over 400 years before what we see happening in our text today. God knew this was part of God's plan, church. And praise God for his plan because we needed it. But the amount that Jesus would be portrayed and how that money would be spent was determined long before the event ever happened. Sovereignty of God, church, it's pointing us right at it. This is all happening exactly how God determined it would happen. So let's move now to verse six, still talking about the scheme. I'm gonna wrap this up. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So Judas reaches an agreement with the priests for 30 pieces of silver. He's gonna find an opportunity to hand the Lord over to the high priests. So the price is right, and Judas has agreed to it. They actually negotiated it. The evidence suggested that they negotiated. And 30 pieces was what they agreed upon. And church, one thing I want to say, and this is just, for better or for worse, just kind of sickening, 30 pieces of silver is not a significant amount. This is a little more than one month's pay that Judas is going to do this. And I won't go there now, but in Exodus chapter 21, 30 pieces of silver is what's owed to the master of a slave who's been gored by an ox. So the life of our Lord was valued at one month's pay. You can translate that in your head, but one month's pay. Again, no surprise, uh, turn with me one more. Turn with me to John chapter 6, verses 64 through 71. John chapter 6, verses 64 through 71. John chapter 6, verses 64 through 71. And John chapter 6, verse 64 through 71 says this. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? So church, as we bring today's sermon to a close, what we've seen today is that the path to the cross has been laid. We saw the agents of evil that made it possible, the Jewish religious leaders, Satan and Judas. All of them want Jesus to die. All of them see some benefit from his death. But the desires of these evildoers have no effect on the situation. Jesus will go to the cross, but he will go because that is what God 
has determined. Look at Acts chapter four, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God wanted Jesus to die because he loves his people. It's necessary. The evil ones in our text today will be held accountable for their rejection of God's Christ by being eternally separated from God in a place called hell. So let me end by pointing this out to you. This presents a good opportunity for you to look at where you are in your life. Are you going to pay the penalty for your sins? Are you gonna let Jesus pay that debt for you? And that, church, is why Jesus had to die. That's why it was God's sovereign will that the cross should happen. If you pay the debt for your sin, it's not going to be good enough. But it doesn't have to be that way. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word as presented today in our text in Luke. Lord, we thank you for your sovereign plan, Lord, that you knew that we would need it, Lord, that we could be reconciled to you. Father, we pray that your word would sit heavy on our hearts and in our minds today, that we would respond to it with repentance and faith, that you would be glorified and that your will would be done as it always has. Amen.